This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. Blinkist is adding all different sorts of content to their app. Uh, It's not just book summaries, but everything to do with learning. They've collaborated with Seth Godin, which is the author of the book we're doing today. And twice a week, they're dropping a fresh two-minute episode, which is a little power packet. Two minutes with Seth Godin is really all you need to get a fresh perspective on how you work, live, and look at the world. And now twice a week, you can get two minutes of Seth on the Blinkist app. If you want to get access to all of Seth Godin's two-minute power packets alongside their thousands of book summaries, you can use our link for a free seven-day trial. Head to Blinkist.com forward slash what you will learn. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com forward slash what you will learn for your free seven-day trial. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of Lynchpin by Seth Godin. Are you indispensable? Our sixth Seth Godin book, one of my all-time favorites. This uh, is his hardest hitting, getting to your core. Doesn't let you wriggle free. Doesn't leave you any excuses to try and back out of this one. This book is about a choice and it's your life. It's about love, art, change and dealing with all the fear. So what if you could learn a different way of seeing, giving, and a different way to make a living than you are right now, but doing all of this whilst not leaving your current job? This book is all about that choice. It doesn't require you to quit your job, but it does challenge you to rethink how you do your job. And uh, the book starts with a big conspiracy. He calls this a multi-generational conspiracy designed to sap your creativity and restlessness. And it starts off with this deal that our parents signed us up for called the Take Care of You Bargain. If you think about our world right now, it was built by our parents and their parents and their grandparents, just filled with factories. Factories that make widgets and insurance and websites, factories that make movies and take care of sick people and answer the phone. These factories need all these workers. And the way you learn to be one of these workers, you pay attention at school, you follow instructions, you show up on time, you try really hard, and they're going to take care of you. You don't have to be creative, you don't have to be brilliant, you don't have to take big risks. As long as you follow the rules that the factories have laid out for you, then the factory is going to prosper, the factory is going to profit, then the factory is going to take care of you. Yeah, 100%. And this following the rules really came from our school system, which we've set up in the right way to support this factory conspiracy. When the bell rang at school, break time was over. You get back to your desk, you sit on your ass and you shut up and you listen to the teacher. Break time's over and now you're at your station. You need to listen and you need to learn. We formed straight lines. You didn't speak out of turn. You simply raise your hand and you make sure you're very respectful to all the authorities. So we've been trained for a life of working in a factory and for a long time, it worked. The Fortune 500, the biggest companies in the world, they took care of us. The teachers union took care of the teachers. The post office looked after us. The local retailers all took care of us. We followed the instructions. We showed up on time and in the end, we got our paycheck. We went about our lives and it was a pretty seductive bargain that we did what we were told and we got what we were given. So for a long time this worked, the best way and the best strategy in your day-to-day job was to do what you did at school. You sit down, you shut up, you respect authority and that's it. But today in the competition of technology, this bargain, it's really fallen apart. Job growth, if you look at it, it's flat at best. Wages in many industries are on a negative downward cycle. The middle class is under siege like never before and the future appears dismal for a lot of people. People like you, you're no longer being taken care of in this bargain. The promise used to be that you follow the instructions and you don't have to think. 
You do what you're told, but the bosses of the factory, they were the ones who took all the responsibility. They were the ones that made all the decisions for you, and you didn't have to bring any of your genius to work. And it led to this mediocre obedience. We all became replaceable cogs in a giant machine. The factory was the machine. It ticked over. It went through its steps. Anybody could come in or come out of the specific roles. They were just replaceable cogs that anybody could fill. Yeah, Seth says it's a bit of a sucker's deal that all of us have been brought into. It's all about the educated, hardworking masses, just doing what you're told and you're no longer getting what you deserve. So what's the definition of a factory? It's an organization that has it all figured out, a place where people to go to do what they're told and just to earn a paycheck. So factories, they convert raw resources into sellable products. They turn the iron into the steel and they... Or they turn the cornfields and they they chop off the top so everyone can eat their corn. Basically, they take something that's raw and non-usable and they put it through their system and at the end comes something that we can all use. So the factories we're talking about, it's us human beings. We're the natural resources for factories. Then your goal as a factory owner is to get as many of the good natural resources or commodities as cheap as you possibly can in order to beat the competitors. So if you're listening to this, you might be thinking, oh, I don't work in a factory, I'm at a corporate office in the city, I wear a suit, I go to my desk, I've got this white collar job, so this factory stuff doesn't apply to me anymore. But Seth says you're exactly wrong. Most white collar workers today, whilst they wear white collars, you're really still working in a factory. You're pushing a pencil, you're processing the applications, you're typing on your keyboard. Maybe you're not building a car, but you're definitely just following the rules and going process, replaceable cog, same inputs and same outputs. You might think that you're not a factory worker like the ones but with all the grease and the hard work, but really you're the same. The only difference in the grease is the grease from your cheesy <laughs> Subway lunch that you're getting every, every day at work. But Seth says the white-collar job, it was really supposed to save the middle class because it was meant to be machine-proof. I mean, the Industrial Revolution came along, took out all your, your hard labor jobs, and then everyone moved towards cognitive, and there's all going to be cognitive and somewhat creative Today, machines is coming for the, the white-collar jobs as well. The things that are easily replaceable and like you're a cog in the machine, the repetitive tasks, they're coming for you. In the old industrial factories, the machines came and took over from the blue-collar workers' jobs. Now, Seth is saying that the machines are coming to take over the white-collar workers' jobs. If your job boils down to a simple list of instructions that you could put in a manual and you can teach someone, then you can outsource it and eventually a machine can take over it. So these rules were written for all of us. It's really just can't, it just tells you to sit down, shut up, and just become average. So where does this average come from? First, you've been brainwashed by school and the whole system into believing that your job is to do your job and follow instructions. It's really not like that anymore. And the second thing is everyone's got this little voice inside their heads that is really angry and afraid. And this voice is the resistance. It's the lizard brain. And it wants you to be average and just play it safe and just fit in with everybody else. So all around us, we're surrounded by bureaucrats, note-takers, literalists, manual readers, TGIF laborers, fearful employees, people who are just following a map. Nobody's creating a map of their own. There's a map placed in front of them and they just follow it. Everyone's in pain. They're overlooked. They're underpaid. They're stressed out. They're probably in fear of getting laid off. And so what factories used to want is compliant low-paid replaceable cogs to run their efficient machines and so now we're seeing that in the factories that are in the big offices in the city we're getting the exact same things out of the people that we employ yeah these factories of the white-collar jobs they want compliant low-paid replaceable cogs to run these efficient machines 
And these kind of rules were written over 200 years ago. And it was really fun whilst it lasted for the factory owners. But you weren't born to be a cog in a giant industrial machine. You were trained to become a cog. But there is an alternative available to you. And that alternative is rather than being a cog, you become a linchpin. A linchpin being indispensable, as the Seth man is saying. So it's given us a way out of all this conspiracy, which has uh, slapped us up a fair bit. I think he's spot on. It is a bit of a conspiracy. It's something that once it's pointed out to you, I think it's very, very hard to unsee. So this situation is a wonderful opportunity for us. It's an opportunity to actually enjoy the work that you do to make a difference to your colleagues and your customers, to unlock the genius that you've been hiding inside yourself for years. It's moving away from this futile work of trying to cling on to the take care of your bargain because that bargain's long gone. So rather than whining about it, we should just move on with becoming indispensable instead. So what's a linchpin? So it's a unassuming piece of hardware, something you can buy for only 69 cents at your local hardware store. It's not very glamorous, but it's really essential. It holds the wheel onto the wagon or the thingamajig onto the widget. But every successful organization has at least one linchpin. Some organizations have hundreds or even thousands. So the linchpin is the essential element, the person who holds part of the operation together. And without the linchpin, everything falls apart. Entire corporations rely on linchpins. At the moment, we've got all of these cogs who are all doing their bits, but the linchpin is really what holds everyone together and drives everyone forward. It's those essential individuals, the ones that are really worth holding on to. You'd hate to lose your linchpin because they're the ones who are really holding everyone together. The easiest linchpin examples that are defined are the, the big CEOs and the entrepreneurs and the high up director and executives that have huge profiles. People like your Steve Jobs at Apple, your Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook, your Jeff Bezos at Amazon, any of these kinds of people. But Seth's not really talking about them. He's talking about what about that person, the great guy down at the vegetable stand, you know, the one who makes it worth that special trip past the cheaper and more convenient supermarket every morning. If that bloke left, the place would go downhill and you'd stop going to that little stand. All the rent, all the inventory, all the investment, they're worthless if that one person leaves. As far as you, the customer concerned, he's indispensable. We're both thinking about who are some other linchpins that we can think about and they're kind of easy to think about because they are the remarkable people, they are the indispensable ones, they are the ones that stand out in your mind. Uh, We're recently... I've moved to a new office in the city, so I've been going to some new cafes. In our strip, there's like five cafes within a 20-meter uh, radius, and so I sampled them all, but there is one uh, woman at one cafe who's uh, the most certainly the linchpin. It's the one that keeps me going back there. She's not the one who's just taking orders and making coffees because anyone can do that. She's the one who's always got a smile on her face. She's always warm. She's always welcoming. She's always the one who, if your glass runs out of water, she's right there with a, with a freshie, uh, and she's most certainly the linchpin of that cafe. Yeah, there's a cafe in Parkdale that I go to all the time because they know every single person's name. I'm not always in that area, but when I do, I'll choose that place. And somehow the bloke, he still remembers my name. There's another one in my where I'm working at the moment. You'd, she's the administrative lady, so I'd say she's on the lowest salary in the office, but she's very quickly becoming one of the most important. She's right now the one who's organizing the drinks after work, the catch-ups at lunchtime, organizing around people's birthdays and all these kind of things. And very quickly, she's becoming one of the most valuable people who's part of the organization. So like the, the Elon Musk types, they're the easy ones to point to. 
but it's also very easy for you to think of the the local ones that are closer to you, whether that maybe someone who organized the fundraiser event, someone who runs a book club at work, and you've got to think about it. This choice is available to you as well. Really, can you become indispensable? And Seth says, of course you can. It's a vitally important question. And you've got to realize that all these people around you have just made the choice to do it. They were the ones who decided to step out of their comfort zone, try something a little bit different, and ultimately they're the ones who the organization revolves around. So listening right now, you might have just realized, oh shit, I'm a bit of a cog. <laughs> yeah. This is true. There was a time when I realized I was a cog. I think uh, after your commodified education, if you, anyone's ever been to university, your first job as an engineer, finance, law, or even as an apprentice or whatever, straight away, I think the default setting is you become a cog. And if you don't do anything about that for your whole career, then you're just going to stay a cog. So I think, as you're saying, it is a decision that we've all got. You get to think of people, other people have done this in the past. I'd say everyone who's a linchpin has made this transition and this transition is available to you as well. So Seth, he's got some good advice about the things you should be doing to become indispensable to make this transition. One way to become a linchpin and to become indispensable is through short bursts of brilliance. The law of linchpin leverage says that the more you create in your job, the fewer clock minutes of labor you actually spend creating that value. So if you look at linchpins, a lot of their day probably looks the same as a lot of the cogs, but there are just short instances where in a short amount of time, they do something completely wild and completely different that adds a ton of value. Another approach is to become a troubleshooter. Think about a restaurant that has four waiters and tough times mean that you got to go out and lay one of them off. Three of them work really, really hard. The other one is good, but a master at solving problems. He can placate an angry customer, finesse the bulky computer system, mollify the chef when he's had too much to drink. Like, who do you think has got the best chance of keeping the job? Another way is to become more human. Think about this. If your organization wanted to replace you with someone far better than you at your job, what would they look for? It's probably unlikely that they're going to be looking for someone who's slightly better, who works slightly more hours, who's got slightly more industry experience, who could sort who could score slightly better on the standardized tests. The problem that you've got isn't that you can't do your job properly. The problem is that you're not bringing enough of your humanness to that job. The real competitive advantage in today's marketplace is someone who is a bit more mature, is a bit more connected, someone who's got the passion and the energy. They're capable of seeing things as they are. Maybe they can negotiate multiple priorities. And basically, they're just bringing more of what it means to be human to their job rather than just following the list of instructions. Yeah, flexible in the face of change, resilient in the face of confusion, all these attributes are choices. They're not talents and they're all available to everyone. I think conventional wisdom would would say, oh yeah, to get a better job, the approach is to go out and get a better master's, get better trained with the, these kind of skills. But becoming more human has huge upside that I really didn't think of until reading Lynchpin. Another way to become indispensable is by becoming remarkable. And Seth Godin has got a book, Purple Cow, that goes deep on how to do this. But if you think you were driving down a highway and you saw a brown cow, brown cow, brown cow, you wouldn't really care. And you see a purple cow, all of a sudden you get very excited and you start telling the people about it. Very similar with your factory work. If you're just another cog that's like all the other cogs around, then no one's going to really talk about you and your brand and who you are. It's not really going to spread to create more opportunities. So one way to become indispensable is do something different, stand out a little bit. And the way to do that is you need to exert emotional labor to be seen as indispensable and produce interactions that organizations and people really care deeply about. Yeah, that emotional labor is something Seth talks about 
a lot is that it's emotional labor is very different from authenticity. I think he hates the word authenticity because authenticity is probably, if you're being truly authentic and doing exactly what you wanted to do, you'd probably be nude in your bed watching Netflix Mm. uh, every day. So emotional labor is actually going away from being truly authentic and it's actually realizing that there's something that you've got to do. So, you know, if it's a the person, the barista at the cafe who's always got a smile on their face. If they've got a shit day, they've still got a smile on their face. If all the customers were rude pricks and they've still got a smile on their face, that's the emotional labor that he's talking about. And what I really like here is all about seeking failure. So successful people are successful for one reason. They think about failure differently to other people. And this comes up a fair bit in different ways. So there's two ways about going things. It's by stretching and growing and trying new things. And in the process of going down this path, inherently in stretching every now and then you're going to fail but you're going to grow because of it and for you that's one type of failure but another one is just stagnation remaining a cog not trying anything new and that's another type of failure so i think the indispensable linchpin sees the stagnant version of the person sitting around their ass doing nothing other than being cogs and taking no risks as the biggest type of failure so seth says you become a winner because you're really good at losing you're really good at failing so you learn those lessons that turn you into a winner And related to this is seeking discomfort. So getting outside of your comfort zone, finding uncomfortable situations that aren't natural uh, is what's truly essential. The road to comfort is completely crowded. There are so many people that are busy hiding out in the comfortable zone that if you're willing to accept a little bit of discomfort, stretch, grow, do something that nobody else is doing, then that's the action that's going to lead to success. Mate, I think the first linchpin moment of my life when I made this choice was actually exactly pushing through the discomfort he's talking about here. I did something that none of the directors had seen before and made me stand out a little bit almost too much that some people didn't like and something I was afraid of. Uh, putting together a business case to give to the directors to be able to spend 40% of my time working on a research project out of the office. Seemed, it was a very ridiculous thing to do and kind of bizarre, but it actually worked out. Uh, but because of that, becoming the linchpin, it actually, retrospectively, it's one of the best things I've ever done in my career. And the big and probably the biggest one is dealing with fear, that the linchpins are the ones who are able to be fearless, but not reckless and definitely not feckless. So Seth says that fearless, it doesn't mean doing things without fear. What it really means is being unafraid of the things that you shouldn't be afraid of. So if you're giving an important presentation to one of your big customers, that's obviously vitally important, but it's not something you should be so scared of that you lose a night's sleep over. Maybe it's about taking the intellectual informed risks that could forge a new path but reckless on the other hand is just jumping straight in and doing anything that comes to mind that's only what the foolish people do reckless people they cause huge problems and normally uh, cost a lot of money as well and the worst thing to do is to be feckless feckless is being ineffective indifferent and lazy and not doing anything whatsoever so the fear is just going to be something that comes hand in hand with you if you're going to become a linchpin Seth loves the question, like, where do you put the fear? Something no one really ever asks. But he thinks it's just as vital as, like, say, back in the day when men were building the railroads, it was clear that the, the, the key to success for them was dealing with, with the fatigue. And when you got tired, you didn't quit. If you did, you lost your job. And no one asks, where do you put your tired? But it's also a very fine question for back then because dealing with fatigue for them was everything Right now, for us in the modern economy, becoming a linchpin, it's all about dealing with the fear. What separates a linchpin from the ordinary person is the answer to this question. The linchpin feels the fear, acknowledges it, then proceeds. 
And we can't tell you how to do this. It's going to be different for everyone. It's going to be different for you. But what we can tell you in today's economy, doing it is going to be a prerequisite for your success. The big fear that Seth is talking about is the resistance, the resistance with a capital R, something he borrowed from Stephen Pressfield's War of Art. The resistance is that force somewhere inside us that pulls us back from taking the risk, that pulls us back from the uncomfortable situation, that pulls us back from failing, and it's really what stops us from achieving that success. Seth talks about this resistance as being part of the the lizard brain. It's the the fight or flight deep within our uh, ancestral DNA, I guess, that stops us from getting outside of our comfort zone and stops us from trying those new things. One thing it does love is school or anything that kind of looks and feels a little bit like what school did back in the day. If it's about obedience, then you can be soothed by thinking that more obedience is better work and that the resistance is just fine with just being more and more obedient. And if it's about fitting in, then yeah, the resistance is going to agree with that. If it's about postponing the day you have to stand up in front of the world and put yourself at risk, then the resistance would love to stay like that forever. If you think back to the factories, the resistance loves a factory. Yeah, It's it's given uh, a set of instructions. It goes about doing its job and there's really no resistance in any of that. There's no fear. There's no risks. So, of course, the, the lizard... Uh, the resistance, it's going to hate going out there and taking the risks that it takes to become a linchpin. Seth says you've got loads of genius in you. You don't need any more genius. You just simply need less resistance. It's the voice inside your head telling you to use bullet points in your PowerPoint slides or use 100 slides rather than just use three and stand up and speak and be seen for the whole time because that's what the boss wants. It's the voice that tells you to leave controversial ideas out of the paper you're writing because your teacher's not going to like them. It's just relentlessly pushing you to fit in in any way it can. So the resistance would like you really to curl up in a corner, avoid all threats, take no risks, and just hide in the safety of the comfort zone. The resistance is constantly pushing you back inside the safety zone because it doesn't want to fail. The paradox of the safety zone is that what feels safe is actually risky in today's world and what feels risky is actually going to be safe in the long run. So in the short term, it's going to feel very risky to stand up, suggest a new idea, to speak up in the meeting, to present a new business case, they feel super risky. But in the long term, if you become the type of person who does stand up, the type of person who talks up, the type of person who does new things, you're going to be the linchpin, you're going to be indispensable and that's the safest long-term path because when everything uh, gets shaken up and the whole world looks different, you're the linchpin that everyone wants. Yeah, the replaceable cog's going to have very little hope when the change comes. It's going to be all about the linchpin. And if you're making that choice right now, then you're going to be better off and well prepared for it. So when you go out and try something new and do some of this kind of stuff, don't listen to the cynics. They're going to be there. They're cynics for a reason. For a lot of people out there, the ones who aren't doing this stuff, the resistance beat them a long time ago. And I think the most important thing about the resistance, when it's telling you not to do something, not to listen to this, not to read to that, not listen to them, not to attend that, then that's the exact thing you should be doing. Okay, it's time to call you bluff. You might be listening along and you might have heard that, yeah, these ideas sound great, but a whole bunch of different excuses have popped up in your brain as to why you can't become a linchpin, why you can't become indispensable, and why you can't do some of the things that we've been talking about. Yeah, you might be sitting here thinking, oh, I'm a part of this big corporate juggernaut and I'm not very passionate about my job and I just feel like a cog... But Seth asked the question, does your job match your passion or does your passion match your job? So conventional wisdom is that you should go out there and find a job that matches your passion, but it's actually backwards. 
Start working with enthusiasm and passion now, no matter what you're doing, and let that match your job instead. Rather than waiting to find the perfect job that comes along that lets you do exactly what you want to do and finding a boss that's going to allow you to become a linchpin, instead just start where you are already and bring some more passion to what you're doing. If you have this passion pent up inside of you, you can actually apply it to what you're doing right now. What it's going to mean though is that rather than just following the rules and doing the instructions and uh, just doing the basic things that everybody else is doing, you got to do that still but add an extra layer on top where you take a risk, where you try something different and where you suggest a new idea. Yeah, you might be thinking, oh yeah, shit, yeah, but my boss won't let me. Uh, they just want me to sit there and just, just be a cog and just sit down and shut up and be a factory worker. But nine times out of 10, Seth says this isn't true. And for that one time out of 10, you should just go get a new job because your job sucks right now in the modern economy. Yeah, exactly. The If you're saying that my job doesn't match my passion, my boss isn't going to let me do this, that's just the resistance talking. Uh, I don't think there are many bosses out there who actually want you to just do the bare minimum and scrape through. I think they would prefer someone who gets out there and suggests something new, takes a little bit of discomfort, takes a little bit of failure and increases their own ability and in turn increasing the profitability of the business they're working for. Another one I like here, what you might say is, oh, but I'll get fired for breaking all the rules. But the linchpin says, if I lean in enough, it's okay if I get fired because I've, I will have demonstrated value to the marketplace. If the rules are what is in between me and becoming indispensable, I don't need the rules. So now's the scary part. Your bluff has been called. Whatever excuses that have popped up, they're not real excuses. They're just the resistance. The barriers to success and the barriers for you moving forward, it's not who you know. It's not who your parents were. It's not the degree you've got. It's not the job you're working for. It's not the boss. It's not the company. It's not where you live. These are not indications or these are not barriers that are going to stand in your way. It's easy to compromise. It's easy to fit in. It's easy to be a compliant cog in the factory. But what's hard and what's really standing in your way is just a simple choice. It's completely up to you whether you want to be a cog or a linchpin. Now that you understand that society rewards you for standing out, for giving gifts, making connections, what are you going to choose to do with that information? If you're listening to the podcast and if you think you've learned something, please go ahead and leave us a review at the platform of your choice.